the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. Welcome to part four of the Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth by Lucy Aiken. Part three concluded with Elizabeth's destruction of her cousin, Lady Catherine Grey. Okay, while that may seem harsh, it could also have been seen as fact at the time. But in this episode, we'll move forward to Elizabeth's marriage options and how she maneuvered through the possibilities both within the realm and outside. Here's where the 19th century observer gives us insight into their mindset on Elizabeth. I hope you enjoy. Whether or not it was with a view of impeding the marriage of the Queen of Scots that Elizabeth had originally encouraged the renewal of the proposals of the Archduke Charles to herself. Certain it is that the treaty was still carried on, and even with increased earnestness, long after this motive had ceased to operate. It was, subsequently, to Mary's announcement of her approaching nuptials, that to the instances of the imperial ambassador, Elizabeth had replied that she desired to keep herself free till she had finally decided on the answer to be given to the King of France, who had also offered her his hand. After breaking off this negotiation with Charles IX, she declared to the same ambassador that she would never engage to marry a person whom she had not seen, an answer which seemed to hint to the Archduke that a visit would be well received. It was accordingly reported with confidence that this prince would soon commence his journey to England, and Cecil himself ventured to write to a friend that if he would accede to the national religion, and if his person proved acceptable to Her Majesty, Quote, except God should please to continue his displeasure against us, we should see some success. But he thought that the Archduke would never explain himself on religion to anyone except the Queen, and not to her until he should see hopes of speeding. The splendid dream of Lester's ambition was dissipated forever by these negotiations and the diminution of the Queen's partiality towards him distinctly visible to the observant eyes of her courtiers, either preceded or accompanied her, entertaining so long, and with such an air of serious deliberation, the proposals of a foreign prince. The enemies of Leicester, a large and formidable party, comprehending almost all of the highest names among the nobility and the greater part of the ministers, openly and zealously espoused the interest of the Archduke. Lester, at first with equal warmth and equal openness, opposed his pretensions. But he was soon admonished by the frowns of his royal mistress, that if he would preserve or recover his influence, he must now be content to take a humbler tone, and disguise a disappointment which there was arrogance in avowing. The disposition of Elizabeth partook so much more of the haughty than the tender, that the slightest appearances of presumption would always provoke her to take a pleasure in mortifying the most distinguished of her favorites. And it might be no improbable guess that almost the whole of the encouragement given by her to the addresses of the Archduke was prompted by the desire of humbling the pride of Leicester and showing him 
that his ascendancy over her was not so complete or so secure as he imagined. It is probable that from this time Elizabeth found no more serious suitors amongst her courtiers, though they flattered her by continuing, almost to the end of her life, to address her in the language of love, or rather of gallantry. With all of her coquetry, her head was clear, her passions were cool, and men began to perceive that there was little chance of prevailing with her to gratify her heart or her fancy, at the expense of that independence in which her lofty temper led her to set so high a value. Some were still uncharitable, unjust enough to believe that Lester was, or had been, a fortunate lover. But few now expected to see him her husband, and none found encouragement sufficient to renew the experiment in which he had failed. Notwithstanding her short and capricious fits of pride and anger, it was manifest that Lester still exercised over her mind an influence superior on the whole to that of any other person. And the high distinction with which she continued to treat him, both in public and private, alarmed the jealousy and provoked the hostility of all who thought themselves entitled by rank, by relationship, or by merit to a larger share of her esteem and favor, or a more intimate participation in her counsels. One noble man there was, who had peculiar pretensions to supersede Lester in his popular appellation of, quote, heart of the court, and on whom he had already fixed in secret the watchful eye of a rival. This was Thomas, Duke of Norfolk, inheriting through several channels of the blood of the Plantagenets, nearly related to the queen by her maternal ancestry, and connected by descent or alliance with the whole body of the ancient nobility, endeared also to the people by many shining qualities, and still more by his unfeigned zeal for reformed religion, his grace stood first amongst the peers of England, not in degree alone or in wealth, but in power, in influence, and in public estimation. He was in the prime of manhood, and lately a widower, and when in the Parliament of 1566 certain members did not scruple to maintain that the Queen ought to be compelled to marry for the good of the country, the Duke was named by some, as the Earl of Pembroke was by others, and the Earl of Leicester by a third party, as the person whom she ought to accept as a husband. It does not, however, appear that the Duke himself had aspired, openly at least, to these august but unattainable nuptials. Elizabeth seems to have entertained for him at this period a real regard. He could be to her no object of distrust or danger, and the example which she was ever careful to set of a scrupulous observance of the gradations of rank led her on all occasions to prefer him to the post of honor. Thus, after the peace with France in 1564, when Charles the Ninth, in return for the garter, which the Queen of England had sent him, offered to confer the Order of St. Michael on two English nobles of her appointment. She named without hesitation the Duke of Norfolk and the Earl of Leicester. The arrogance of Dudley seldom escaped from the control of policy, and as he had the sagacity to perceive that the Duke was a competitor over whom treachery alone could render him finally triumphant, he cautiously avoided with him 
any open collision of interests, any offensive rivalry in matters of place and dignity. He even went further. He compelled himself by a feigned deference to administer food to that exaggerated self consequence, the cherished foible of the House of Howard in general, and of this duke in particular, out of which he perhaps already hoped that the matter would arise to work his ruin. The chronicles of the year 1565 give a striking instance of this part of his behavior, and the information that the Duke of Norfolk, going to keep his Christmas in his own country, was attended out of London by the Earls of Leicester and Warwick, the Lord Chamberlain, and other lords and gentlemen who brought him on his journey, quote, doing him all the honor in their power, end quote. The Duke was not gifted with any great degree of penetration, and the generosity of his disposition combined with his vanity to render him generally the dupe of outward homage and fair professions. He repaid the insidious complacence of Leicester with the goodwill and even with confidence, and it was not till all was lost that he appears to have recognized this fatal and irreparable error. Thomas Earl of Sussex was an antagonist of a different nature, an enemy rather than a rival, and one who sought the overthrow of Leicester with as much zeal and industry as Leicester himself sought his, or that of the Duke. But by means as open and courageous as those of the opponent were ever secret, base, and cowardly. This nobleman, the third earl of the surname of Ratcliffe, and son of him who had interfered with effect to procure more humane and respectful treatment of Elizabeth, during the period of her adversity, had been first known by the title Lord Fitzwalter, which he derived from a powerful line of barons, well known in English history from the days of Henry I. By his mother, a daughter of Thomas, second Duke of Norfolk, he was first cousin to Queen Anne Boleyn, and friendship still more than the ties of blood closely connected him with the head of the Howards. Several circumstances render it probable that he was not a zealous Protestant, though it is nowhere hinted that he was even secretly attached to a Catholic party. During the reign of Mary, his high character had approved loyalty and caused him to be employed first in an embassy to Emperor Charles V to settle the Queen's marriage articles, and afterwards in the arduous post Lord Deputy of Ireland. Elizabeth continued him for some time in this situation, but wishing to avail herself of his counsels and service at home, she recalled him in 1565, conferred upon him the high dignity of Lord Chamberlain, vacant by the resignation of the Earl of Arundel, and appointed as his successor in Ireland, his excellent second in office, Sir Henry Sidney, who stood in the same relation, that of brother-in-law to Sussex and Leicester and whose singular merit and good fortune it was to preserve to the end of esteem and friendship of both. The ostensible cause of the quarrel between these two earls seems to have been their difference of opinion respecting the Austrian match, but this was rather the pretext rather than a motive of an animosity deeply rooted in the natures of the situation of each, and probably called into action by particular provocations now unknown. The disposition of Sussex was courageous and sincere. 
his high spirit, his judgment clear and strong, his whole character honorable and upright. In the arts of a courtier, which he despised, he was confessedly inferior to his wily adversary. In all of the qualification of a statesman and a soldier, he vastly excelled him. Sussex was endowed with penetration sufficient to detect, beneath the thick folds of hypocrisy, an artifice in which he had involved them, the monstrous vices of Lester's disposition, and he could not without indignation and disgust behold a princess whose blood he shared, whose character he honored, and whose service he had called himself embraced the pure devotion, the dupe of an impostor so despicable and so pernicious. That influence which he saw Lester abuse to this dishonor of the queen and the detriment of the country, he undertook to overthrow by fair and public means. And so far as appears, without motives of personal interest or ambition. Thus far, all was well. And for the effort, whether successful or not, he merited the public thanks. But there mingled in the bosom of the high-born Sussex and a liberal disdain of the origin of Dudley with a just abhorrence of his character and conduct. He was wont to say of him that two ancestors were all that he could number, his father and his grandfather, both traitors and enemies to their country. His sarcasms roused in Lester an animosity which he did not attempt to disguise. With the exception of Cecil and his friends, who stood neuter, the whole court divided into factions upon the quarrel of these two powerful peers, and to such extremity were matters carried that for some time neither of them would stir abroad without a numerous train armed, according to the fashion of the day, with daggers and spiked bucklers. Scarcely could the queen herself restrain these angry opposites from breaking out into acts of violence. At length, however, summoning them both into her presence, she forced them to a reconciliation, neither more nor less sincere than such pacifications by authority have usually proved. The open and unmeasured enmity of Sussex seems to have been productive in the end of more injury to his own friends than to Leicester. The storm under which the favorite had bowed for an instant was quickly overpassed, and he once more reared his head erect and lofty as before. To revenge himself by the ruin or disgrace of Sussex was however beyond his power. The well-founded confidence of Elizabeth in his abilities and his attachment to her person he found to be immovable. But against his friends and adherents, against the Duke of Norfolk himself, his malignant art succeeded but too well. And it seems not improbable that Lester, for the purpose of carrying on without molestation his practices against them, concurred in procuring for his adversary an honorable exile in the shape of an embassy to the imperial court, on which he departed in the year 1567. After his return from this mission, the queen named the Earl of Sussex Lord President of the North, an appointment which equally removed him from the immediate theater of court intrigue. Not long after, the hand of death put a final close to his honorable career and to an enmity destined to know no other termination. As he lay upon his deathbed, this eminent person is recorded to have thus addressed his surrounding friends. I am now passing into another world, 
and must leave you to your fortunes and to the queen's grace and goodness. But beware of the gypsy, meaning Lester, for he will be too hard for you all. You know not the beast so well as I do. And that concludes part four of Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth by Lucy Aiken. Thank you so much for joining me again for another installment. Stay tuned for part five. Until next time, I'm Rebecca Larson. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.